morning. He has risen. Amen. My name is Ken, and I am so glad you're with us this morning here at Crosswinds, whether you're online with us today or you're here in person. Um, it, it, it's, it's exciting time to come to life and believe in his resurrection. Now, some of you may be saying, hey, it's Easter. Of course, we all believe in the resurrection. Let me ask you, is that just a, a sentimental story to you? Like Santa Claus? A religious story you've heard? Or are you absolutely convinced that a human being who walked on this earth like you and I do died and three days later, long enough for his body to putrefy, walked out of a tomb alive again without any medical attention? He walked out of the grave alive. Because if you believe that, it will change everything for you forever. Actually, there's no point in us being here today if it's not true. And everybody that you know has died and is lost if Jesus has not been raised. And and your faith is empty or a waste of time. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So if if you don't believe, happy Easter. Go home and enjoy some chocolate bunnies and ham. Because that's all you get. Now, it's not unusual for us to doubt or to disbelieve. Even the disciples of Jesus did not initially believe and, and, and grasp the reality, the amazing reality of what had happened. They needed evidence from God that it had happened to believe it. Jesus' friend, told, as their friend, told them that, yes, this would happen many times. But they didn't believe it. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've been told over and over, Jesus rose from the dead. But have you ever asked yourself, do I believe it? See, there's a point in my life, even after being a believer, where I went, that really happened. As I looked at the evidence, and it changed everything for me. I believed because I wanted to, but now I believe because I knew it was true. Do you know it? In the same way, you know that your hand is attached to your body that Jesus rose from the grave. Because there is a difference between assuming something to be true and knowing it to be true. And I believe the church is often very ineffective today because we assume the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't truly know, believe, and truly celebrate what the gospel is actually saying. The good news, or the gospel says, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. At Crosswinds, we have this method of teaching our members how to have a gospel conversation called the three circles. And as I disciple people on how to share that with others, 
The, the number one thing that I have to correct people in their training is not to assume that people that they talk to know and understand the gospel. Almost every way, the first time they do it, pass over the gospel. They'll talk about brokenness. They'll, they'll talk about God's design. And they'll just say the gospel and they'll move on. But just saying the gospel is not the gospel. What is the gospel? Most people just pass over it and assume it. Like it's old hat information that, hey, everybody knows. Like Santa Claus wears a red hat. But it's the most important doctrine. It can't be skipped. It cannot be overmentioned. Because here's the problem. You can't be saved without a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, 9, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That verse is saying that salvation is based on a correct understanding that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. How can we skip over something and just simply assume it when we're sharing the gospel with others. How can someone say they have believed in the gospel if they have not heard it? In Acts 10, the apostle Peter said this, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It shows a physical resurrection. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he had He is the one appointed by God to be judge over the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. Peter is saying is that you must believe that Jesus rose from the grave. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 43 that we must believe in Jesus. But what he's talking about is we must believe in his resurrection. Now, it might be possible that some do not speak of the reality of the resurrection, maybe because they feel uncomfortable by proclaiming it as truth in this modern world. They might think they're going to face objections, that they just don't simply understand the truth. Or is it that they don't really understand how important this truth is. See, once the disciples were convinced of the resurrection, there was no stopping them. They had no fear. They never assumed the resurrection, but always proclaimed the resurrection as something necessary to believe to be saved. You're not saved by thinking Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, someone who did miracles, or even was the son of God. Without a resurrection, none of those things matter. Resurrection is what proves those things to actually be true. Actually, if you believe that the resurrection did not happen, Jesus was not a good man. He was actually a liar. He was a con artist, or he was insane. And not someone who could save us and give us eternal life. There are so many today who call themselves Christians that would believe in a spiritual Christ, a consciousness, if you press them. Many of the pastors in this town believe that. And they deny the truth 
of the resurrection. There are lots of people in our world today that wear religious collars that try to imitate some of his moral behaviors that do not believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Instead, they believe in their traditions, that those stories are meaningful somehow, and that they're somehow helpful to people, and so they keep repeating them, but they don't believe. Beloved, beware of their teaching. They're not on Jesus' team. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Not believing Jesus came to earth as a man and died and resurrected in the body is evil according to the Apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends. And he's addressing many in his generation that did not trust in the resurrection, but they trusted in their special religious knowledge about him. This was a group called the Gnostic, which means to know. They, They trusted in their own knowledge or their own religious spiritual information, the things that they could attain, not in a God who died for their sins and was raised physically on the third day. The Apostle Paul said, if Jesus did not, is not raised from the dead, the Christian faith is useless and futile. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17. It's, it's, it's robbed from any true significance in our lives or in our eternities. For our faith to be useful, for it to be significant, we need to look at the evidence in God's word for the resurrection of Jesus. So today, please open your Bible to Luke chapter 24. And starting in verse 1, it says this. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. In that verse, I believe there is a ton of compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus if you will just think deeply about it. First, we need to consider who the author is. Luke was not one of the original apostles. Luke was a physician, a man of science. He was well-educated in the first century, unlike many of the other disciples. Many of the others were just fishermen from out in the sticks in Galilee. They weren't men of science. But Luke was a doctor. He knew the difference between life and death. And he writes his gospel in the style of a historical document. Luke wrote his gospel so that we would know the facts of the resurrection and what it is. His gospel starts this way in chapter 1. Inasmuch as we have compiled to take, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word, and have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. See, Paul or, or Luke was a man that had done much research and investigation of the facts of Jesus' life. The gospel was written to a man named Theophilus, who was most likely a Roman official as part of a dis- defense brief for the Apostle Paul when he was under charges. You know, the first attack on the important belief of the resurrection today is that people say the authors were unreliable. They, they say things like, the Gospels were not written down till hundreds of years or even thousands of years after the resurrection. And they just became legends that ancient people liked to believe. But Luke is saying he interviewed all the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life, that he had investigated their stories and their writings to make sure the facts were straight. You know, one of the earliest texts we have about the resurrection is from 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul writes this, For I I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some may have fallen asleep. This is believed to be the earliest creed of the Christians. It was circulated among them to remember the important doctrine of the resurrection that they believed about Jesus. Historians have placed that text, many who are atheist historians, have placed that text that it was being circulated around A.D. 33 to 35, just a few short years after Jesus was resurrected. According to the Apostle Paul, Luke would not only have had access to just a few people, but hundreds of people that had experienced the resurrected Christ. He was around for 40 days after his resurrection. History proves that early Christians believed in the resurrection from the beginning. History proves that. It was not a legendary idea that came in later. Scholars who are experts in ancient literature say it takes much longer for legendary co- content to come into literature. It doesn't happen in one or two years. It, it, it happens in about four to 500 years. That's what experts, scholars in literature would say. So those that believe the story of the resurrection to be historically inaccurate because of how long ago it was written would have to say that also much of History, as we understand it, is also inaccurate. For some might claim that the historical information we have about the Roman emperor Julius Caesar is more accurate than the information we have about Jesus. You know, there's only about 12 ancient manuscripts that historians use to determine the wording of Caesar's autobiographies in the, the, Gael, I think the Gaelic uh, Wars. Um, uh, the closest manuscript we have to from when it was written is 900 years after the events. That's the closest manuscript we have. Um, more evidence about his life was also in 35 other manuscripts dated from about 450 AD to um, uh, the 11th century. This is where scholars build much of our understanding of who Julius Caesar was. The gospel accounts were believed to have been written down 
around AD 60 for the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then AD 90 for the, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then AD 90 for John. All of this is within about 60 years of the resurrection. It's all within the same generation. Let me give you an example. Let's say I published an article right today that said, when I was 30, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the famous musician, died and three days later was resurrected. There'd be a lot of people that are part of my generation that would say, Ken, that is crazy. That's nuts. That didn't happen. But we have Paul circulating a document that the Apostle Creed is based on other things, that, that 500 brothers were around at the time he was circulating this document that could corroborate or deny what he was saying. This didn't happen somewhere in a bubble. It happened in a major city in Jerusalem. Luke was Paul's physician who traveled with him and would have had access to many of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection so that he could get all the facts straight for us. The next thing skeptics would do is they would have to discredit the character of Luke and the apostles as just simply liars, that they sought to spread a false story. Let me ask you to think about something. What would be their motive? It would not be the typical thing that motivates the men of our history like profit, power, or fame, for they had none of that. History proves that these men were penniless. They were abused. They were on the run, and they were killed for the resurrection story that they told. In addition, all the apostles were uh, brutally killed asking with them being asked to recant the story, and none of them did. Twelve men. The people, people we know will die for something they believe to be true. We've seen that. But ask yourself, would you die for something that you knew was a lie? If the disciples had faked the story, why would they do that? They'd be choosing to be social outcasts, broke, and martyrdom to propagate this lie. Some other critics say it's, it's like the telephone game, that the story changed over time. But friends, there's no evidence for that. Scholars have 5,600 ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament. And modern computers have analyzed the accuracy between all of the copies. And they're 99.5% consistent in their story. There's only a 0.5% margin of error. And those errors do not refute the resurrection. They are punctuation or formatting or word errors. Throughout the centuries, people have been very careful to get us the story. Luke also wrote about political leaders, about places, about dates and events accurately in his gospel. And still today, modern archaeology confirms he was accurate in those things. Why would he assume that he and the other writers would fabricate the resurrection? Here, though, it's one, for me one of the most compelling reasons in the Gospels that they are written to be honest and accurate. And it's in verse 1 of Luke 24. They. And that refers to the women going first to the tomb on that Easter morning. In the first century, if you were to fake a story, there was no way you would write down that women were your first witnesses to the most important event that you based your movement on. Women in the first century were considered unreliable witnesses. They couldn't even testify in a court of law. 
Even the male disciples did not believe them initially. Yet all four of the gospel writers concur. It was the women that first encountered the empty tomb and saw and spoke to the risen Lord. Now, this is an embarrassing detail that you would not write down in the first century unless you were wanting to have integrity and be accurate. This text also gives the women's reason for going that morning. It was to prepare a body. That is evidence that Jesus actually died. Another attack skeptics bring is that Jesus is dishonest. He was the one that was dishonest. That he faked his own death in some way and, and then recovered. And that later his, his disciples only thought that there was a resurrection. And this makes no sense historically or theologically. Historically, Romans were expert killers. They, they, they killed a lot of people. They had crucified 6,000 slaves on the Appian Way over a 120-mile stretch of highway. They, they had it down. There was no evidence of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. The, the gospel writers don't even describe to us very much what a crucifixion was because everybody knew it meant your death. Crucifixion, though, for us was a slow torture where you died by asphyxiation. The victim's body was positioned on the cross so that they would have to painfully push up on the, the, their feet that were nailed to the cross and pull up with their arms for every breath. And death happens slowly, painfully. That's why we get the word excruciating out of the cross. They, they would finally lose strength and then they would suffocate because they couldn't pull themselves up for a breath. This would take hours. And to speed up the process, the victim's legs were often broken. In Jesus' case, after six hours on the cross, there was a rush to finish it because they didn't want to have that public humiliation going on during the Sabbath. And when the soldier came to, to check on Jesus, he found that he was already dead. And to confirm his death, a Roman soldier thrust a spear in his side just to make sure. See, soldiers had an incentive not to make mistakes in the Roman army. They were under orders to kill Jesus. And if Jesus was not dead, that soldier soon would be. You know, when the spear went in his side, out came blood and water according to scripture. And today, medical experts say that is evidence of uh, the pericardial sac was ruptured in his heart, which brought about death. Now, the women, they would have witnessed all this because the guys were home afraid. The simple fact that they're going to the tomb that morning proves that that is to be true. See, the women were close enough to the event to know that he died, and they also stayed to watch to see where Jesus was buried. See, in ancient times, criminals who were crucified were often thrown into a mass grave. But in this case, Jesus uh, had a benefactor, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who provided his own nearby tomb for him so the women could see where he was buried. It was close enough that he could be buried before the Sabbath and close enough for the women to, to follow and know where to come back to that first Easter morning. The, the belief that Jesus did not die is totally unreasonable. The Gospels 
say that the Roman soldiers scourged Jesus before crucifixion. Now, scourging was beating somebody with a leather whip called a flagrum that had bone and metal in it. And, and Jesus received 39 lashes because it was believed by everybody that 40 lashes would kill a man. After the scourging, Jesus' back would have looked like hamburger and he would have been bleeding profusely. After the scourging, he would have been near critical conditions. And that's even before he spent six hours nailed to a cross. The scripture tells us he could not even carry the crossbeam of his cross that weighed between 70 to 90 pounds. And a member of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to do it by the Romans. In our text, the women find the stone rolled away. The stone would have been one to two tons based on historical information. They were easy to roll down into place to cover the tomb because gravity would help you. But how would a weakened man who couldn't lift 70 or 90 pounds move a one to two ton stone against gravity in the dark all by himself with no leverage? If you look at how the stones are on the outside. Now the three women coming to prepare the body even realized that they, with three women, could not roll the stone away. Mark's gospel tells us that, that they, they asked that question, who's going to roll the stone away for us? The, the accusation that Jesus faked his own death is very ignorant of the facts. Another accusation skeptics have given throughout the centuries is that the disciples must have stole the body. The women do report that the body was not there. Notice it was only the women that came. The men were still afraid. They were afraid they were going to be tortured. They were going to be killed too because of their association with Jesus. Let's see if there's anything in the text to these disciples stealing the body. It says this of the women in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, after they saw the stone rolled away and the tomb empty, behold, two stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to him, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why were the women perplexed? Didn't Jesus often say he would rise? Weren't they coming here that morning secretly hoping that he might be alive? Absolutely not. That was the furthest thing from their mind. The text says, They brought spices. They were expecting to find a dead body. And most of Jesus' followers, the Jews, or were Jews, and and there were two Jewish sects, the the resurrection, and the other sect, the Sadducees, who did not. But the, the, the people that believed in the resurrection, the Pharisees, believed in a much different kind of resurrection than what Jesus actually did. The the Jewish believe in resurrection that souls of the righteous go and wait for a final resurrection. They did not believe in an individual resurrection as Jesus did. The female disciples are perplexed by these events because they're not even expecting a resurrection at this time. The male disciples are fearful and despondent And they're not coming to the tomb because they believe it's all over. They're not expecting a resurrection. There's nothing in their theological framework as Jews that would give them the hope that Jesus would actually rise. 
For them, when Jesus was crucified, all of their hopes were gone. They were dashed. Theologically, if he was to be resurrected, it would not be anytime soon. Their friend was gone. Their political aspirations of a political Messiah who would bring them out of Roman oppression was completely gone. They were devastated. Them trying to spin a story of a three-day physical resurrection in their Jewish community was not even on their radar. Why would they fake something that they did not even believe or that nobody else could believe could happen? You know, some skeptics say this belief in resurrection was just mass delusion by religious people hoping for a Messiah. But they weren't hoping for this kind of Messiah. Mass delusions don't work this way, according to the experts. People were hoping for a conquering king, not a suffering king. And they would have, they would have had a delusion towards that. They didn't want somebody that was hung on a tree, cursed. That was not something they expected for their Messiah. They would find no glory in that kind of delusion. It is more likely that they would have a narrative that Jesus was translated to heaven like Elijah or Enoch. That would fit their delusion. A conspiracy theory about God allowing a Messiah to experience being cursed, dying on a tree, and being raised in three days are, is, was not at all what anybody was looking for. It was on nobody's radar to steal a body so that everybody would think that he resurrected. That's, that's a silly idea. That conspiracy theory was actually started by paranoid religious people in the establishment that wanted to try to keep everybody under control. They, 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 they fear that the movement might create trouble, and so they remember that Jesus had said something about rising in three days. And so in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-three, they say to Pilate, Sir, remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. They weren't expecting him to rise. They just didn't want any trouble. So we know that there was a more well-guarded tomb because of that. Even in this text, the, the women seeing the, stole, the stone rolled away from the tomb do not conclude that Jesus must have been resurrected. They also assume in John's gospel that somebody had stolen his body. Here's a proof text of how his disciples were really thinking about the resurrection. Jesus, um, while he was still alive, was speaking to his disciple Martha before his brother Lazarus was raised. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Her, her faith tells her that she will see her brother again someday it's kind of like when you say to somebody well they're in a better place it, it, it didn't have real meaning it had religious meaning but not concrete physical meaning an immediate resurrection was not on her radar radars uh, you know there was no real hope in her she even tries to stop jesus from opening her brother's tomb because the body will stink And then Lazarus was not resurrected, but he was revived 
from death by Jesus. A, a physical resurrection was not anything the disciples were hope, hoping for. Peter, when he hears Jesus' teaching about death on a cross and his resurrection in Mark 8.31, actually rebukes Jesus for teaching such a, a, a bad thing. Uh, G- Peter cannot see anything good in Jesus' plan. He does not believe or expect this kind of resurrection. Or he wouldn't have denied his friend when he was captured. Jesus' disciples are a demoralized and terrified group of men. They're not a bunch of brave Navy SEALs that can carry off a plot by going by stealth and recover a body behind two by a two-ton rock while it's being guarded by trained soldiers, that's just not within them. Now, the women have to be told by the angel, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because they're looking for a body in the tomb. They're crawling into the tomb, looking for a body, not a resurrected Jesus. The angel was sent there to remind the female disciples about Jesus's word, and help them understand what had happened. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and raised on the third day. On the third day, rise. It doesn't sound like anybody was making up a conspiracy like the religious feared. In their minds, all the disciples had rejected what Jesus had said God's plan was. See, God's plan is not easy for us as human beings to accept. The angel had just repeated what Jesus had said, that the Son of Man, which was his title, that meant God. Some skeptics say he never said he was God. He said all over the New Testament, because every time he said the Son of Man, that's what it meant. That comes from Daniel 7. And he liked to use that because it didn't have the political baggage of the Messiah. Jesus said that the Son of Man must die because we're all so sinful and his death is the only way for us to be saved. You know, most of us reject that our daily transgressions are so bad in God's sight. The, The only way for us to escape his wrath is for his son Jesus to die, to receive our punishment for us, and then rise again from the grave to prove it. See, the resurrection is like a receipt proving that the debt of our sin has been paid. Jeremy saying Jesus paid it all. Well, the resurrection is the receipt. And see, no one likes to admit their sin. This is not even a popular message today. Most of us think, that our stuff doesn't stink the way other people's stuff stinks. Jesus must here confirms that we all as humans stink of sin. And a bleeding victim on a cross is bloody and shameful because our sin is bloody and shameful. And Jesus in love for us must go to the cross to remove it. It's the only way. And, and, and this is not a plan that the cleaned up religious people want to accept. 
They like a, a bull or a goat that will do just fine for a sacrifice for our, our little sins. But the Son of God, a, a Messiah dying, is too an extreme idea for us. And the women remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The women were the first ones to preach the true gospel. They preached that resurrection was God's plan, not the disciples. And the angels were there to help them remember and accept God's good news to them from Jesus. Now, when the women go and attempt to have a gospel conversation with the men, Jesus' very own chosen apostles, they are rejected because the apostles don't believe Jesus' words. And they don't expect him to rise. Now, there's only 11 because their treasurer, Jesus, bailed earlier. He saw no profit in God's plan of Jesus going to a cross. And so he took a little profit for himself, 30 pieces of silver. Not one of Jesus' top students accepted God's plan of death, burial, and resurrection. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. See, Luke is careful to tell us these names of these women because they were important to the ministry. These were not obscure women in Jesus' ministry. These were women that were known to be of great benefit to his ministry. They were patrons, possibly funders, um, and major funders who cared for the needs of the, the ministry. Yet the apostles reject their words of Jesus rising from the dead as a, a fantasy, something insane, an idle tale cooked up by some grieving women. So even with evidence, the, the disciples did not believe in the resurrection. The apostles will need much more evidence to believe such a fantastic story even though Jesus had said it so many times. So in verse 12, it says, Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping to look in, and he saw linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It was only Peter and John. They were the only two disciples that had the courage to run to the tomb and check things out. And maybe it was because they were the closest to Jesus, or maybe it was because Mary and Mark was said to go tell Peter the very one who had betrayed him, to come. And and they saw evidence proving something amazing had happened. His grave clothes were neatly folded, something an ordinary man does not do when he gets undressed. Right, ladies? Even after Peter examines the empty tomb, an empty grave, and the clothes, he does not say, Jesus is risen. It says in the text that he's marveling or confused by what had happened. We, we know that Peter and John do not believe yet because of the next narrative in Luke 24. Later that day, Jesus appears to two other male disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't even recognize Jesus. Somehow his appearance was masked, maybe because they were not looking for a resurrected Jesus because of the lack of belief in his words, and that blinded them to the truth. And Jesus asks them, what they're talking about, why they're so sad. And they basically say to him, have you been living under a rock? Have you missed all this happened in the city? 
We had hoped that the one was here to redeem Israel, showing that Jesus' male disciples had no hope in this resurrection. And, and they were confused. It says this in the text. And yes, besides all this, now on the third day since these things happened, moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they came back, they did not find his body, saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. They're just confused by it all. They don't believe Jesus has risen. It doesn't fit their worldview. They have no idea of the meaning of any of this. They're definitely not plotting a, a, a conspiracy of a false resurrection to start some kind of political or religious movement. Jesus has to rebuke his own disciples for their unbelief. Oh, foolish one and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus has to have a second gospel conversation with his disciples to explain what a resurrection is. And and as they walk Together, Jesus explains that all the scriptures throughout all of their history point exactly to it. That this was God's plan all along. That because of our sin, it was completely necessary for our Messiah, Jesus, to suffer, die, and be raised into glory. Wouldn't you have loved to be a a fly on the wall for that Bible study? These men are Jesus' disciples. Some of these are going to be the leaders of his church later, and they don't get the gospel. So, friends, we can't assume people who have heard of Jesus get the gospel. Jesus' own disciples, none of them got it. And they lived with him for three years. I, I, I bet the gospel came up more than is recorded in Scripture as they hung out together for three years. Martin Luther said this, preach the gospel at all times and sometimes beat it into their heads. See, our pride, it's an obstacle to us hearing the gospel. We, we don't want to believe that it's necessary for anybody to do something for us. We want to fix ourselves and, and, and take the credit. But Jesus is saying it's necessary for him to do this. He said that to Peter when they wash the feet. If you don't wash you, I have nothing to do with you, basically. We have to be washed by Jesus' blood. Jesus is taking and knocking a few of his disciples' heads together, saying, you goobers don't get it yet. The women were just reminded of the angel's word to him. But here the men are actually being rebuked for how slow they are to actually believe what Jesus has been teaching them about their own need for his perfect sacrifice. So Jesus reveals all the scriptural evidence of their history, of the Jewish people walking away and their sin that angered God and and his purpose of coming to redeem the world. The, The scriptural evidence for Jesus being who he was, being God, is astounding. You know, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus that come true in the scriptures. If only 48 of those were 
true in one man. There's a mathematical expert, Peter Stoner, that said that the mathematical odds of one man fulfilling all 48 of those was 1 to the 157th power, which is a number so large it represents about the amount of electrons in the known universe. That's how great the odds are of one man fulfilling all those prophecies, and, and Jesus fulfilled thousands or hundreds of prophecies. I have said we are not saved by believing in God. We are believed, we are saved by believing God. We must believe God about Jesus' resurrection or we will not be saved. Romans 4.24 says, For ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord. What the Apostle Paul is referring to in that verse is that we need to believe God's word to us in the gospel. Like Abraham, who believed God's word to him in a desert about something that seemed so utterly impossible, having a son in his old age, in his wife's old age. He had to believe in that new life. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When we believe in the resurrection, we're believing God about what he said about his son, and we are credited for right, with righteousness for doing it. We can't be forgiven by God until we come to the point of believing what he has said to us. A- after sharing God's word to them, Jesus reveals himself, and they see the reality of the scriptures, a, a-, a resurrected man. Now, he reveals the word before he reveals himself. And he has dinner with them. He's physically alive, eating dinner, walking with them. But he also has a spiritual body that can disappear from their sight. And he appears somewhere else to show himself to Peter. And the men say to them, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road? When he opened the scriptures to us, our our faith friends, comes from hearing the words of Christ about his gospel. And and so we can't assume that. We can't overlook that. The disciples run back to Jerusalem and find out Jesus has also revealed himself to Peter. And, And they're the first believers to ever say, he is risen. And they're talking As they're talking, Jesus appears standing among them and says, peace to you. What a word. The God of the universe says to men and women that have not believed him and many who have deserted him and disbelieved in him. Yet despite that, God comes in his love and has chosen peace with them. And then Jesus asks them a question. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Which is a great question for all of us today. Now, they become frightened thinking they've seen a ghost. And and Jesus provides further evidence for, for those ones that still are not ready to believe in the resurrection. To calm their fears, Jesus says, look at my hands and feet, and he shows them the scars, and, and, and they can touch him. He's not a ghost. And they're still not believing in what a resurrection really means, that their friend is alive and has a, a, a new, different body that's spiritual and physical. It's enhanced, and he can appear in one place and another. And, and the Gospel of John even tells us that 
that Thomas puts his own fingers in the holes in his hands where where the the nails went, and he he puts his hand in his side where the spear went in, and even then, Luke says they are still disbelieving. So then he just says, "Hey, can I have something to eat?" And he eats some boiled fish in front of them, and says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. (laughs) This is a third gospel conversation God is having to have that day with his own people that they might believe Jesus' words to them. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Every time the gospel is spoken, it tells of a Savior that must die and suffer for our sins and then be raised again. This is why I said, If you don't believe in a physical bodily resurrection, you have not yet heard and believed the gospel. And so you've not been saved. You've not been saved by him. Today, this Easter morning is a time for you to believe and find life. God has been preaching this message to us in many ways over thousands of years, and people have rejected it. The gospel says that God has infinite love for you and and he died for you. And and the resurrection is proof of that. Moses and Elijah and all the prophets looked forward to a day when Jesus would be resurrected and they believed. We must look back and remember and believe that we have eternal life because he lived. If you remember the story of the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah, Elijah showed up and talked with Jesus, they, what they talked to him about, they talked to him about his departure, his death, and what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, rising from the dead. We are beloved, we're not saved by practicing a, 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 a nice religion, nice stories, or, or saved by our own morality, by being obedient to the law of Moses, or by our heritage. Jesus is saying we are saved by our belief in what he must do for us, cleanse us of our sin. To die physically, to pay the price for our sins, and then be buried to prove that he was dead. And then, on that first Easter morning, to be reanimated or raised to life by God three days later, proving once and for all our greatest enemy, sin, and our other enemy, death, has been defeated by his love for us through a promise that he made before the foundations of the world. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked a really important question. Do you believe this? Do you believe his words? He is risen. 
Do you believe that? If so, you have nothing to be troubled by. You have nothing to fear. You can have peace because you have peace with God and you have attained eternal life. Today, if you don't believe, then you're looking for life among the dead. Dead things like religion, like self-improvement, like your job, like your personal morality. Today, Jesus is alive. And in him, you can be too. If you will hear his word to you and believe it. Come alive today and believe what God has been saying to us throughout all the ages. Today is the day to believe Jesus' words to us. That he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father God, I I come before you and I thank you that the evidence is just right there in your word. That your word is true. And Father, just like the, the, the man on the road to Emmaus, reveal yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit to someone today. Whether they're online or they're here with me today, if there's doubts in their hearts, let them have that realization that this is true. That God loves me and he gave his life for me. And he promised me me everlasting life if I'll just turn from my sin and believe in him. Father, I pray that today you will send the Holy Spirit to convince hearts. To preach the gospel to them in their hearts right now. That they might believe and be saved. Oh, Father, do a mighty work in this place today. Do a mighty work as people hear this message online. Send your Holy Spirit Reveal to them that you are alive. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Don't you stand? And as we worship, if you've never believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you've been struggling with doubts and fears, come and pray and receive him today by faith as your Lord and as your Savior.